on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, increased production at one northern abattoir processing lamb and sheep. This time last year, we were doing about 7,500 units per week. And now, last week, for instance, we did 15,500. So we've basically doubled production, which has helped keep on top of the extra numbers that are available. And And the Agriculture Minister happy lamb prices have dropped in supermarkets. And I think it's been very frustrating to those producers to not see that reflected in supermarket prices. So over the last few weeks, I've actually been calling on the retailers to do the right thing. Um, But if prices are lower at the farm gate, then they should be reflected at the supermarket shelves as well. A drop in prices for lamb and the big increase in production at One North Tasmanian Abattoir processing lamb and sheep. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this midweek Wednesday. Lots of cattle, sheep and lamb information today, including the latest from the Parana livestock market with Richard Bailey. That's a bit later in the program. Some big news in the dairy industry today. Coming up in a moment, Saputo looking at the future of the King Island Dairy, one of the icons of the Australian cheese industry. Also today, asbestos on farming properties. Do you know if there's any asbestos on your farm? November is Asbestos Awareness Month, so we'll talk about that as well. Plus a check on the weather, and we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 is that number 0438 First up today, dairy giant Saputo is considering selling its King Island Dairy facility. The Canadian company has announced it will undertake a strategic review of the facility as part of an effort to reduce the operating costs of its Australian network. And it would also be investing $27 million in new capital projects across its remaining Victorian and Tasmanian sites. Saputo hopes to find a buyer who will continue making cheese and the facility, including more than 60 workers and a small handful of local farms, will continue to run as normal in the meantime. Meg Powell gave King Island Mayor Marcus Blackie a call to find out his thoughts on the review of the dairy. The King Island Dairy Company are family to us here on King Island. It's personal for me. After I left the Army in 2019, because of my long Army career, I had, and war service, I had great resettlement training benefits available to me. So I actually went to New Zealand and became a a trade qualified cheesemaker at dairy schools in New Zealand. So then when I retired from the army here on King Island in 2019, I was able to go and work for King Island Dairy for 18 months um, in their blue cheese factory, mostly making their blue cheese. So I know firsthand the quality of the product they make. I know firsthand how good the brand is. But I also know, know and understand firsthand the challenges and logistic problems and other things they've got as well. Um, Saputo are, are ultimately a Canadian company. Um, whilst I worked there, I, I met uh, the founder of the company, Lino Saputo, and I also met the current boss, Lino Saputo Jr. Um, in my opinion, they're outstanding gentlemen. That they're a great company, and uh, in particular dur- during the COVID uh, period, they didn't lay off any workers in any Saputo factory um, around the world. They gave their word on that, and they kept their word. And uh, so I admire that, and I give them credit for that. So they're a good company, but clearly at the moment, Saputo around Australia have got some issues, and their media release centred around milk supply. And milk supply is an issue here on King Island because a lot of farmers who used to run dairy farming operations made the business decision to go over to beef farming. Uh, You know, less work, less 
certification, less equipment, less getting up at three in the morning. Uh, it was this decision made for the right reasons, uh, you know, under their circumstances. However, it meant that we've had a dwindling milk supply here on King Island for a while. So how uh, many how many farmers are supplying the factory there? As, as far as I'm aware, and just off the top of my head, as I understand it, there's five five to six dairy farms currently supplying uh, King Island Dairy. Um, and Saputo or King Island Dairy, they have to own the two to three biggest ones to guarantee their own milk supply. So that, that's how critical milk supply has become on King Island, and, and, and it's a big consideration. Mm. To, you know, to, to, to rebuild, I guess, the, the King Island Dairy factory would, would take a significant investment, um, and to pay for that, they would have to double production at least, but the milk isn't here on King Island to do that anymore. So that's, that's part of the challenges they've currently got um, is centred on milk supply and because of the reduced milk supply now available on King Island, although it's exceptionally high quality milk, there's not enough of it these days because beef farming has taken over, but it means that the King Island dairy has been in slow rate production for a while, uh, again, which has contributed, I guess, to their current situation. So look, so I, I understand and appreciate the current logistical challenges and corporate challenges that they've got for operating here on King Island Dairy, I understand only too well uh, milk supply issues, not only in Tasmania but around the country. However, um, in its history, I think King Island Dairy has had seven owners over the years. Um, you know, in more recent decades, it's been National Foods, it's been uh, it's been Lion and Lion Mason, the alcohol uh, booze company, um, and and most recently Saputo. Saputo took over when I worked for them back in 2019 and it was seen as a good thing at the time because, you know, having a, having a cheese factory and dairy brand sitting amongst the company whose core business was, was making alcohol didn't fit. Um, whereas when Saputo acquired King Island Dairy and, and the other associated uh, cheese factories in Tasmania, suddenly we were part of and able to plug into a global cheese, you know, logistic and distribution network and, and new markets were going to be open to us. So... We saw it as a as very positive and a good thing at the time, but now the, the situation has changed, obviously, um, and they're conducting a review. So my, my fervent hope is that the company, as we know it, King Island Dairy, the brands, the recipes and the history can be sold as a going concern to, to someone else who can overcome these current challenges but can see the potential for the brand in the future because all Australians love, you know... All Australians love King Island Dairy cheese. Uh, it's it's an easy sell wherever I go as mayor. Is there is there any word on the branding? I, I guess it's not finalised yet. Even what what Saputo will do, but I guess is there a possibility they could keep the brand, the King Island Dairy brand, and sell just the the building, the facilities. Look, I, I guess that's a possibility. I mean, they own the brand, they own the recipes, they own the IT these days. I, I, I imagine if if they wanted to, they could probably take it elsewhere, like to Bernie or wherever else, and continue to make or attempt to make King Island Dairy cheese to our recipes using Tasmanian milk. But we know it's not going to be real King Island cheese. Real King Island cheese is made with the superb milk um, from cows here on King Island that eat our incredible grass. Um, All of our cows here are are pasture-fed, and the grass here is so luxuriant, it produces incredibly sweet, rich milk that makes you know, the King Island Dairy Cheese famous. Um, it's a big contributor. So 
I would argue it wouldn't be the same. King Island Mayor Marcus Blanke talking there to Meg Powell about the future of the King Island Dairy after the owner Saputo announced a review of the facility with a possible sale of the plant down the track. Uh, Helen on the text line says the cheese factory is still the same, absolutely wonderful, great staff. It sickens me to think these takeovers happen. No government intervention. Such a tragedy to think this may all disappear. Let's hope it doesn't. Helen, thank you for that. 0438922936. We'll talk lamb and beef in a moment. Each weekend, catch Landline on ABC TV. Our goal is to put an end to petroleum plastic. It's a national yarn about people who work on the land. I think we can share the ideas together. Hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. It involves harvesting a byproduct of honey production. Landline is Australia's only agricultural TV show covering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. It's good to connect and be out on country. Landline, Sundays at 12.30 on ABC TV and iview. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The state's largest lamb processor has increased shifts at its Cressy plant to accommodate larger numbers of lamb and mutton. That's because both markets have been pretty depressed and farmers also don't want to carry surplus stock if it's drying off. Lewis Smith caught up with Jake Oliver from Taz Quality Meats to find out how it's managing increased production. The dry conditions have definitely created a few issues and there's been more livestock available, um, in particular out of the southern end of the state. We have been focusing on getting numbers through our plant, basically. So in the south there's been a lot of mutton available, so we've upped our our uh, kill capacity to, to take those extra numbers just to get on top of the backlog. So, for instance... This time last year, we were doing about 7,500 units per week. And now, last week, for instance, we did 15,500. So we've basically doubled production, which has helped keep on top of the extra numbers that are available and, and get those surplus sheep off the farm as quick as possible for the farmers. So, um, you know, we're out to about a week to 10 days waiting time on mutton at the moment, which is yeah, just nice, really. And the investment that you've made in additional infrastructure here, has that helped to keep up with that demand? Yeah, 100%. You know, we've put a, a lot of... We've expanded our, our slaughter floor and boning room and we've put a few new machines in that have, have taken the workload off, off our employees, made the job a little bit easier and helped us be able to, um, I guess, speed up the chain and get more through per day, which is resulting in more numbers for the week. And, yeah, it's working really well at the moment. How do you envisage November to play out then, given how busy October has been? There might be low mid-November, just before we start to see the ewes, um, the cull ewes coming forward. Um, but from then on, it, it'll be very busy and there's going to be a lot of, lot of numbers around. So... We're just trying to focus on keeping on top of them now so when the big flush does come, we can hopefully um, handle those extra numbers. So what's your kill space looking like, you know, December, January, February? Are you booked up until that point? Um, we've got bookings up up around those dates, but we've still got plenty of space. But, yeah, I guess um, for our guys that, that send us, you know, mutton, for instance, at the same time every year, it'd probably pay to ring up our buyers and and pencil them in so you get the kill space. I'm reasonably confident that we can sort of keep keep up with the extra numbers. So, um, yeah, once we 
get through a few mutton. We'll focus more on on the extra trade lambs as well. So we've got a little few more things to do in our boning room. So by the time that season really starts in, I guess, December, January, we'll be, have a more capacity for those heavier, better end, you know, 24 or 5 kilo lambs. So um, we're doing a bit of everything, which would be good. Are you finding a home for all this additional product? Yeah, we are. Um, the market came back um, significantly compared to last year. There's no doubt about that. But I think the demand for quality product is definitely still there. Um, it's obviously at a lower price at the moment, but the demand's there and, and if um, the stock's presented well and with good finish, we'll definitely be able to continue to sell it. And we're, we're seeing with our customers at the moment, um, while things are a little bit harder to sell, um, having that quality product and that good reputation has made it a lot easier for us to sell the product, basically. Because so. we are seeing the supermarkets adjusting their prices at a retail level. The, there's been such a huge discrepancy between what farmers were getting and what customers were buying. Have you had to adjust your prices accordingly? Yeah, uh, 100%. Basically, if you want to sell the meat, you've, you've got to have a quality product. But the price, the price is back, so hopefully, you know, we, we get the next 12 months out of the way and, and clear a few numbers. There's record numbers being processed Australia-wide at the moment. Um, hopefully we can clear a few of those numbers out and then um, the price will naturally come back up to a better level for the farmers and us. You're hoping to shift more stock into the US market? Yeah, the US market's proving to be um, a really important one for us. So we've got, you know, all of well, most of our lamb that goes to our boning room, our heavier lamb, will end up in the US. And having that market's been able to help us sort of hold up our prices um, at the farm gate for the last, you know, since we've had it last three or four months, we've found that we've been able to hold our prices up at a higher level and um, and pay the farmers, you know, um, a better price in the end of the day. So it's. Without those extra markets, would be really struggling, I reckon. So you're about to send a, a 40-foot container over to the east coast of the US, and I guess, you know, you, you'd be targeting the the, the higher-end markets around, uh, you know, states like New York. Yeah, so our um, container's due to arrive any day this week now. Yeah, we've had, had the guys over here from the US and show them around a few of our farms and things like that and they're really happy with the paddock to plate story. They love the product so they're just waiting to get it there so they can show it off. There has been opposition from farmers in the US though to Australian and New Zealand lamb with a, a group of farmers putting up a petition to, to slow down imports. Does that concern you? Not really. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, we're not a huge company so I think the customers that we're working with at the moment are after more of a niche product. We're not trying to compete with all the, the bigger companies. You know, We just want to get that solid base and those people that are willing to pay a premium, um, which we think we've found, and so we can have a long-term relationship with those guys and then flow on that with our farmers and, and work on forward contracts and things like that. So the, the work that's been going on behind the scenes to pick up these extra markets, that's obviously been recognised by uh, the Tasmanian government. You've recently picked up Tasmanian Exporter of the Year. Yeah, yeah. No, I was um, 
I'm really happy with that. Now we get to go to Canberra at the end of the month and go in the Australian competition. So interesting to see how we go there. But we're yeah very proud to to get the award. I think it's a a huge team effort to win the award. You know we've got a good young enthusiastic management team here, and I think our culture is um, really good, which yeah really helps with these sorts of things. So I guess. Um, it's a yeah, it's a team effort, and everyone's played their part. Jake Oliver from Taz Quality Meats at Cressy talking there to Larissa Smith about the increase in production and the export market for lamb and mutton, especially to the US. And speaking of America, it turns out they love Tasmanian beef as well, meaning some producers here can keep those premium prices even while the market is in a slump. Greenham sends 70% of its meat to America, where it stands out from those massive feedlots you see in the States. Thousands of animals confined to pens, which often doesn't go down so well with the general public. Meg Powell ran into Jess Laughlin from Greenham's at a beef growers meeting yesterday at Olverston and spoke to her about the company. Yes, so the US is a key customer for our natural beef programs. Uh, they have been for a long time. We saw a real evolution in the US in the early 2000s with a consumer starting to seek natural alternatives, um, being a production system that was a little different to the one they see at home. You know, where the US is very good at long fed grain given their climate. Um, you know, they have very cold, harsh winters. So feeding cattle on pasture year round is something that is difficult to do across the country. However, a consumer who may not necessarily understand that, you know, they see animals in in confinement and um, they're seeking a natural alternative. You know, they have images of animals roaming free and that's something that is really well aligned with our Australian production system, right? We do that very well here and as we saw consumers in America starting to go from that, I want to know it's grass-fed to then wanting to see verification as more and more claims and more confusion hit the market in you know the early 2010s, the programs became a lot more sophisticated and there started to be industry-agreed definitions around, well, what does grass-fed mean and those sorts of things. Something you showed today was regenerative beef hot dogs, which I have never seen before in my life, and regenerative bone broth as well. These are new products? Yeah, so they're new products. Uh, both those products I showed were in the US, um, both for sale in your Whole Foods, so your natural supermarkets in the US. We tend to find with those sort of claims and um, particularly awareness around alternative claims or systems, the US often moves in that sort of space first before Australia anyhow. And, you know, your Whole Foods is often a great place to go and see, well, what's what's sort of coming next and where are people going? We're seeing this really progress in the US and you've got a very different farming system. So to them, this regenerative animal, this animal that moves through, you know, pastures, that a farming system that farms in a way that's promoting biodiversity, that's got these beautiful, healthy waterways, like that doesn't seem strange to a Tasmanian at all. You know, it's, it seems just how you farm and how, how you manage the land and the environment and everything else you want to pass on to the next generation. But it's a very different concept. This makes for a very premium product and we all know that Tasmanian beef is, is a very premium product America's feeling the squeeze of the cost of living, I guess, as much as anywhere else. Are they still paying for it? And Australians still paying for it? Yeah, so definitely beef in general can be seen as a bit of a luxury item these days, particularly in Western countries. We've got to remember we have very different farming systems and very different markets that we access right around the globe. The environment that we farm in here has a beautiful story and, and marketing story. And, you know, when we talk about the customers and things that we sell to overseas, and when you talk about your Whole Foods and those sort of things, equivalent to, say, a Harris Farm here in Australia, right, you've got a consumer 
walking in who maybe is not as affected by your cost of living, right? They've got a bit more disposable income. They're going into a premium supermarket and they're willing to pay for a product that aligns with their values. For us and for what we try and do with our premium brands is to really target those consumers because we're lucky in the in the area that we live within and this type of cattle that we have. We produce an animal that tastes beautiful and eats really well that we can really attract those premium markets and those consumers who are a little less price sensitive. So that's really what we try and do and, and try and do it in a way too that we're getting premiums for products all across the carcass too. So, you know, the bone broth that you mentioned or whether it be the hide for leather production, really looking at those premium products and brands that, you know, a, a consumer who just wants to feel good about what they're buying is, is trying to purchase. And I suppose on the flip side, as we heard someone ask today, uh, is there enough incentive at the farmer end of things to jump through? There's a lot of hoops and a lot of things to jump through to be certified with the Greenham system in particular, but as regenerative farmers or whatever. Our Never Ever program, the sustainability standard, very similar, right? So the, the sustainability standard will be an add-on to the Never Ever program. It will be audited with the existing Never Ever audit, so it's not an additional audit. Um, Greenham cover the cost of all audits, so there's no cost to be involved um, from a farm perspective. But when you look at any program standards, you know, whether it be never ever a sustainability or something else, it looks like there's a lot in there, right? It's asking you to do a lot. What we need to remember is a lot of this is heavily aligned to how our farmers are already farming. When we talk about the claims that we make on PAC, you know, um, one in the US is vegetarian fed. Now, feeding uh, animal byproducts to, to cattle, it's, not, it's against the law here in Australia. But if it's not in the standards, you can't make that claim overseas. You know, Likewise, a lot of what's in the first tier of our sustainability standard is actually already legislation. So what we're doing really is just putting it in standards to really confirm to the customer that this is happening on every farm and we've audited it. But then if there are gaps between you know, what, what that legislation or, or requirement is or even the guidelines um, and what's happening on farm, then we can understand why and provide farmers with the support to meet that. As you move up through the tiers and you start to look at your market needs or your long-term industry goals, um, there may be a little more to do. But what we've found in a lot of the farms, again, is we've gone out and most of the things they're already doing in some way. Maybe it's an extra record or two. Maybe there's another test to take, another soil test or something. But in most businesses, it's actually not a lot. So the challenge for us when you present these standards is to go, okay, how do we actually start with what's the farm doing now? and create some focus so that it's not so overwhelming so that we can then say okay well based on what you've just told us you're already doing here's the handful of things that you may need to implement such as records and those sorts of things to meet this new market and access a new opportunity and you know gain all these resources and things um, and benchmark yourself on you know where where the industry may be heading or, or where the market or consumers may be evolving as well. Jess Laughlin, Livestock Supply Chain Manager for Greenham's talking at a Beef Producer Update Day at Ulverston, talking there to Meg Powell about the important US market for Tasmanian beef. Sheep meat exports are set to exceed the record set last year with big increases in shipments to the Chinese and Middle East markets and North Africa. There's been a huge increase in beef exports to North America, as we were just saying, taking it from fourth to first in the international destinations for Australian beef. While healthy demand internationally isn't currently translating to strong domestic prices, Tim Jackson, Global Supply Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, says there's plenty of cause for future optimism. I suppose in general, the most important part is that exports across the board are up. So beef exports are up 44% from the previous year. Um, lamb exports are up 
uh, 17% from the previous year, and mutton exports are up 51% from the previous year. And that's really good to see. But in particular, the fact that we're seeing strong demand across just about all of our major export markets, um, and, and the fact that that uh, demand has held on and grown throughout the year, shows that as we produce more red meat, um, there are people that want to eat it, and there is that demand in the international market. And I suppose it, it's probably no surprise that these figures are so high, given that we know there's been such massive throughput through our abattoirs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've seen uh, in in the case of, of cattle um, throughput, uh, we've seen you know numbers kind of getting up above where they were last year and the year before, and that's reflected in the export figures. And of course, um, lamb production last year was at a record high, and we've been going over those numbers this year. And so um, it would be no surprise that uh, our export figures are going to match those quite high throughput numbers. And looking at some of the key export destinations, starting on beef, uh Exports to Japan, not so strong, but North America, huge growth in the past year? Yeah, so what we've seen this year so far has been a large increase in exports to the United States um, and a large increase to China as well, and then a bit of a decline to exports to Japan. What's really promising here is that exports to the United States are well up on year-ago levels. So the US was our largest beef market um, at about 27,500 tonnes, which was about twice as much as it was last year. At the same time, we've actually seen a year-on-year increase to Japan. Okay, that's beef. Let's look at sheep meat. Uh, Sheep meat exports overall expected to exceed that record that was actually set just last year. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for this year so far, our lamb exports are sitting at a a bit over 267,000 tonnes and our mutton exports are sitting at nearly 169,000 tonnes. And both of those are well up on last year. As you said, um, sheep meat exports were at record highs last year and it looks like we're going to uh, exceed that volume again this year. And again, North America, the, the big player in terms of lamb exports? Yeah, well, so we've seen uh, very high volumes into uh, lamb exports into North America. Um, in particular, we've seen a surprisingly robust sort of exports into Canada. So North America is a very, very important market and very big. The other thing in, in lamb that's really striking um, is the increased volume into China. Volumes are up 14% from last year, and in October, we exported just over 6,000 tonnes into mainland China. Tim Jackson, Global Supply Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, collecting the numbers there with Angus Verley. Still to come on the country, we'll talk asbestos on farms, plus a check on the livestock markets with Richard Bailey and the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Michael Delafontana. Thank you, Tony. The latest National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Report shows Hobart has the highest rate per capita of MDMA, cannabis, fentanyl and oxycodone. 
used out of any capital city in the country. It also ranks first for nicotine use and second for alcohol consumption out of all the capital cities. The Federal Coalition argues both Optus and the Federal Government should be doing more to help customers affected by the ongoing outage. It's not yet known what has caused the outage from early this morning, affecting millions of customers and vital services across the country. Electric vehicle charges and the RACT's roadside assistance number have been impacted by the nationwide Optus outage. And trainer Sam Friedman says Melbourne Cup winning horse without a fight has recovered well after yesterday and will rest before racing again next year. Friedman celebrated the win with family and friends in Melbourne last night before returning to his stables at Mount Eliza on Victoria's Mornington Peninsula this morning. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather with Alex Melitsis from the Bureau. G'day, Alex. G'day, Tony. Uh, nice and sunny and warm out there, but uh, there's a bit of action around and a few thunderstorms, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So pretty warm out there right now. Uh, currently the highest temperature across the states, uh, 26 degrees in Launceston and fairly humid out there as well. So if you're out and about, you're probably feeling like it's warm and, and muggy and unsettled and you can probably sense in the air that there's a thunderstorm or two brewing this afternoon. But we are starting to see the odd little thunderstorm pop up. Uh, there's some lightning currently over the central highlands and we're expecting to see much of the southern and eastern halves of the state uh, see some lightning. Uh, this afternoon and into this evening. Uh, the heaviest thunderstorms and the most frequent thunderstorms are expected in the southeast of the state. Uh, probably from late this afternoon and into the evening will be the most uh, shower and thunderstorm active time. Uh, but uh, look, throughout that period there uh, in that area in the southeast, we could see rainfall totals of around. Uh, 5 to 15 millimetres throughout the whole area, but uh, totals in excess of, uh, isolated totals in excess of 20 or 30 millimetres in, in those thunderstorms as well. So potential for some heavy falls about in that area this afternoon, Tony. Okay, look out for that. Um, now, has there been any rainfall of note? Uh, well, we had um, some storms yesterday inland, so um, Derwent Bridge yesterday reported around 17 millimetres of rainfall, uh, and generally we had around uh, sort of four to eight millimetres of rainfall ac across many um, parts across the uh, inland areas in the southern half of the state. Uh, that's to 9am this morning. But since 9am, we haven't uh, reported any significant rainfall and that's yet to come this afternoon. OK, after that, uh, what's going to happen with the weather? Yeah, well, these, these thunderstorms will uh, remain probably into this evening and, and really sort of clear off late this evening and in the wee hours of tomorrow morning. So by the time we all wake up tomorrow morning, it should be another, it should be a fine, another warm and almost humid day again tomorrow with just the odd little light afternoon shower or two popping up tomorrow afternoon, generally looking at less than sort of one to five millimetres of rainfall across most parts tomorrow. Uh, and then on Friday, we've got a warm northwesterly airstream. So uh, fine uh, dry weather on Friday, uh, temperatures getting up to almost uh, almost approaching 30 degrees in the Upper Derwent Valley on Friday, so quite a warm day. And then things change quite a bit on Saturday, Tony, as a, as a cold front cr uh, crosses uh, during the morning. So quite a warm night, Friday night into Saturday morning, and then that colder air moves over the area on Saturday afternoon. And that'll bring cooler conditions across the state uh, on uh, later on Saturday and into next week. And it's looking like next week will be average to maybe even a bit below average temperatures for much of the week. 
week. Um, and in terms of rainfall, apart from these thunderstorms uh, this afternoon, I can't really see any sort of meaningful rainfall on the horizon, well, at least for the next two weeks, across any parts of uh, Tasmania. So reasonably dry a uh, couple of weeks ahead. Mm. And uh, that's getting into summer weather then, by then. So I know there's a lot of farmers out there still need more rain. Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I suppose there's a chance that, uh, you know, if you're in the south or east today, you might get a whack of rain, but it's going to be pretty quick. I can imagine that if we do get heavy rainfall today, it'll be, you know, maybe 20 millimetres in an hour or two, and it's going to be very hit and miss. You know, you, you might not get much, but the bloke down the road gets quite a whack. So, yeah hope uh, there's a slight chance you might get some decent rain today. Any warnings with uh, the weather we've got? Uh, Look, uh, no warnings at this stage, but uh, we're just monitoring the radar and if we see the thunderstorms lining up, there is a chance we could see some uh, heavy rain that may lead to flash flooding Um, and the highest risk for that would be in the southeast, probably north of Hobart, um, across the sort of southern half of the Midlands and the lower east coast, but look, even Hobart has a slight risk of seeing some heavy rainfalls. So we are just monitoring for severe thunderstorms this afternoon, otherwise there's uh, no no other warnings of note. And the coastal waters and swell, what's happening there, Alex? Yeah, look, I suppose the main thing to be aware of if you're going boating today and tomorrow is there's quite a bit of sea fog around. So just be aware that uh, today there's a big bank of sea fog across the northwest that extends into the west coast uh, later today. And then tomorrow there'll be sort of areas of sea fog across most parts of the coast. So just be aware that there could be um, a fair bit of fog around. Uh, But look, if you are going boating tomorrow, generally uh, light and uh, variable winds to around uh, 10 to 15 knots. Uh, and uh, we're basically looking at in a swell in the western south. We've got a southwesterly swell tomorrow of around one and a half to two metres. In the north tomorrow, a westerly swell below half a metre. And in the east tomorrow, we're starting to see a northeasterly swell build. That'll reach one to two metres during the day tomorrow. Currently, the Cape Sorol Wave Rider buoy in the west is sitting on around two metres, and that's a southwesterly with a period of around eight seconds. And in the east, the Mariah Island is uh, Wave Rider buoy is sitting on around one metre, and that's a southerly with a period of around six seconds. Appreciate that, Alex. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Tony. Alex Melitzis from the Bureau. Keep listening to your local radio station, ABC Local Radio, right throughout the afternoon, and we'll keep you informed as to what that weather is doing. So you might get some rain in the Midlands. Let's hope, uh, yeah, it falls where it should. Coming up, we'll talk asbestos on farms. Hi, it's Lucy Braden from Drive on ABC Radio Hobart. The ABC Giving Tree helps raise money for people doing it tough when it comes to the cost of living. By helping out with a financial contribution, it gives people in need more dignity in how they choose to give joy to Tasmanian families at Christmas. If you can, donate online now to the ABC Giving Tree Appeal. Visit abc.net.au slash givingtree. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listener. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Question for you. Do you know if there's any asbestos present on your property? 
We don't use it anymore, of course, but there's still plenty of asbestos out there across the country. Pretty much any structure built before 1990 could still contain it, posing a risk to those wanting to demolish or renovate. And there's also the issue of naturally occurring asbestos in certain rocks and soils. November is Asbestos Awareness Month and there's advice on how to protect yourself, your loved ones and your workers. Britt Baker is president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association and he's talking here about the month. There is a lot of asbestos right across Australia. Typically one in three houses um, prior to that time contained asbestos. Now you, you'll find it in around about 3,000 different building products. And if I just went through a, just an ordinary home, you could have an asbestos roof or even a farm shed um, or any, any built structure. When you're saying where, where can you find it um, on the farm, well, any structures that have been man-made that have been built um, using any form of cladding or insulation um, will typically contain asbestos, as I mentioned, typically one in three. So if we, if we gave you an example of a, of a farmhouse um, or even a shed, it could be the roof, um, can be the, the guttering, the, the downpipes, the eaves lining faces, underneath tiles as well if it's, um, if it's got a cement or concrete roof, um, even on the, on the verge cappings under the sides, wall cladding, um, window corking, so the mastic around the glass, inside in any wet areas, um, even on your floors, your, your actual vinyl floors, glue that holds the vinyl floor down, um, packers in between your piers and your floor joists, and the list just goes on. So as I mentioned, there are around about 3,000 products, so I could sit here all day and give you a list of <laughs> any, anything can really contain asbestos that was um, used for building the actual structure and the linings for a, um, for a structure. Yeah, definitely getting the idea that it's pre- it could pretty much be in anything. You also mentioned there earlier, though, naturally occurring asbestos, and this might be less well known that it can what naturally occur in certain rocks and soil as well. Well, that's right, Selena. Asbestos is a natural product, so it's basically it's a rock, um, and, and there's different types of rocks um, that will contain, you know, your, your common asbestos, which is your blue, your brown, your white asbestos. And it can be found, there are generally built some strips around the nation that, that have um, asbestos. Right. So that said, I guess asbestos, perhaps not a concern until you start moving it. So if you're destructing a property, if you're doing some renovations, or if you are perhaps digging up that soil, this is when problems can occur? It's, it's when it becomes airborne. So even if you aren't disturbing it, the wind can disturb it if you have any weather events um, or even fire and that type of thing, it can actually disturb the asbestos without you actually physically touching it. But yes, if you do, if you do physically touch it or if you have machinery that will go through and break up the asbestos, anything that can generate fibres or generate dust from that asbestos, that's, um, that, that's when it can pose an issue. So if you have asbestos around the home, you have typically two classes of asbestos. You'll have what they call a bonded or non-friable asbestos, which is typically doesn't become airborne too easily. And if you have that, I'll give you an example. Wall sheeting, for example, um, asbestos-containing wall sheeting, if you keep that well-maintained by keeping it painted, that, that typically will then encapsulate the asbestos and, and it doesn't become airborne. Whereas if you have a friable asbestos, um, which is an asbestos dust or something, can you, if you can just picture if you had some in your hand, if you could pulverise it in the palm of your hand, it becomes um, like a crumbled or powder. Um, that's what you can typically class as friable asbestos. That relatively um, becomes airborne relatively easily, and that can pose certainly pose an issue. And it's and it's much more difficult to contain. So it's not just when you disturb it; it can be just by 
by erosion. It can be just by natural consequence with, um, you know, with wind. Um, but airborne fibres can exist. I'm speaking with Brett Baker. He is with the National Asbestos Awareness Campaign. This month, November, is Asbestos Awareness Month. So what is generally the advice around handling this sort of stuff? And that's going to differ as to whether it's in um, a, a building structure or whether it's in your soil. So basically you need to, you need to do planning. And that's what a lot of people, um, you know, it's around their house. They, they typically don't plan as much as what they would if they were doing a, a job, you know, for somebody else. It's, um, she'll be right, mate. They'll get in there and they'll, and they'll just get stuck into it. So it really comes down to planning. What I always suggest to people is use an experienced licensed contractor uh, to undertake any work involved with asbestos. Now, I understand that's easy to say, um, you know, sitting back, you know, behind a desk to say that. But some circumstances, you certainly can do that much easier than others. Now, much easier is in the built environment, so in a home. Um, it's much easier to get a licensed contractor to come in and to remove the asbestos. Um, whereas I understand with naturally occurring asbestos, if you're in a farm environment, you're certainly not going to get contractors in to undertake farming for you. Um, so you're going to do that yourself. So it comes down to proper planning and putting together what is typically known as an asbestos management plan. Um, asbestos, an asbestos management plan will help you identify where the asbestos is and what the hazards and control measures are to mitigate somebody breathing in um, asbestos. And also cross-contamination. You don't want to then do work out in the field, get asbestos all over you and go back to your loved ones at home and bring asbestos into your house for somebody doing the laundering of the clothing, um, you know, kids coming up and giving you a hug as soon as you get home, then breathing in the asbestos. There are, there are all these scenarios where you can try and mitigate um, that cross-contamination of asbestos. And it's a matter of really planning. And an easy way for people to get more information about this would be um, at the website asbestosawareness.com.au or even speaking to your local council um, or, or your regulator. If you do get your soil tested and there is a presence of asbestos in your soil, um, is that sort of pretty much, you know, walk away from that or there are measures that you're aware of to, to remediate, remediate or safely deal with those soils? Well, it depends. If your entire area that you own contains asbestos and you, and you need to make a living from it, I understand the implications that people will continue to work um, those properties. But if you had the choice of working on a property that, or an area that didn't contain asbestos, obviously you'd be working those areas. But it really comes down to putting in appropriate procedures um, and being extremely mindful that the dust is hazardous. And so taking precautions such as wetting down areas, um, so doing it whilst, I guess, when, when, when it's raining. Um, and, I, and I understand this is very easy saying you're sitting behind a desk because it may not be practical in the practical sense out there to actually to do that. Um, but then you need to look at things like using an enclosed cabin where you can for your equipment, putting your cabin um, air conditioning on recycle, uh, closing the windows. Um, in, in extreme circumstances, um, you can also wear personal protective equipment such as respirators or coveralls. Um, so if you do have any dust that does come into the cabin, that you're not breathing it in and then your coveralls can be disposable and you can, and you can put them in a bag and appropriately wrap that and leave that in a contaminated zone prior to then, say, for example, getting into your car or going, going into the house um, with your loved ones. So it's a matter of, of putting together a management plan, being aware of where the asbestos is, un understanding what activities you could be undertaking that could be generating dust and how to mitigate and, and how to suppress the dust and how to mitigate 
um, that dust from getting onto your clothing and, and being breathed in. Um, with simple things such as dust suppression, um, if you have a water cart or a hose to be able to wet down areas when you're doing things um, or being mindful to do these things when it's not really windy, understanding which direction you're going to be travelling to avoid you know, being in the dust as you're, as you're travelling around the, the paddock um, and that type of thing. So really comes back to planning. And there's a few uh, resources on asbestosawareness.com.au that would be worthwhile looking at if you were in those circumstances to be able to make you just a little bit mindful and aware of what you're going to be um, doing when you're disturbing asbestos and what you can do to mitigate those risks. Do you know, if, are there any implications then, depending on what you're using that, that land or that soil for, if it's for grazing or for, for cropping, that there could be then implications for, for what you're producing off that land as well with that asbestos going through sort of the chain? No, there's no known, there's, there's really no known uh, plants that will basically pick up the asbestos and, and you know, and, and cause any kind of health risks associated mm-hmm. with um, that I'm aware of associated with eating or even with the, with the animals, you know, eating grasses and whatnot associated um, with naturally occurring asbestos on a property. Um, I guess the only thing you need to be considerate of is if you are removing any plants, crops or whatever the case may be and you're getting any dirt and dust and um, going with the crop, then there's the potential issue there. But more than likely, um, a lot of farmers will not be removing their soil when they're um, removing the crops. Mm. And so it's only if the soil was to go with it as well, if you're going to be pulling out some root-based plants or some roots of, of some plants and that dirt then that could potentially contain asbestos then then getting taken off site, which is typically unlikely because um, usually you don't have dirt going off your, uh, off your site. Some good advice there from the president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association, Brett Baker, speaking there with Selena Green. And that website for fact sheets and information, asbestosawareness.com.au. Well, the Agriculture Minister has welcomed a decision by supermarket giant Woolworths to finally drop the price of lamb. Sadiad prices for sheep and lamb have fallen drastically this year. Some categories down 70% on their peak. Woolworths have announced from today 26 lamb products will be cut in price by 20%. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has welcomed the news but says Woolworths and other supermarkets could do more. I certainly welcome that decision by Woolworths to pass on some of those savings to Australian consumers. I know when I go and buy my leg of lamb on a Saturday to make a roast, I've seen the price rise in recent years and months, and I think everyone has been going through the same thing. So to provide some cost of living relief in that way with lamb prices at the supermarket, I think will be really welcomed by Australian shoppers. Has it come um, too no... late, though? Because sale yard prices had fallen substantially in the months prior. Yeah, look, I, I think I really empathise with uh, sheep and cattle producers because we've seen prices for both commodities fall significantly in recent months. Uh, and I think it's been very frustrating to those producers to not see that reflected in supermarket prices. So over the last few weeks, I've actually been calling on the retailers to do the right thing, that um, if prices are lower at the farm gate, then they should be reflected at the supermarket shelves as well. And, you know, I think we all recognise that there are additional costs incurred between the farm gate and supermarkets, transportation, 
processing costs, all those kind of things. But I think everyone was getting a bit jack of seeing such a big discrepancy between the prices farmers were getting and what they were having to pay at the supermarkets. So I'd now like to see the other big retailers join Woolworths and pass on those reductions. Uh, and, you know, without with, with any luck before too long, we'll see producers getting better prices as we work through the sort of oversupply um, that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Do you think you may have played a role in Woolworths' decision here? Oh, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to, to sort of claim that, Warwick, but, you know, I thought it was important as the Minister to deliver a message to the retailers that they do need to meet community expectations. You know, I think traditionally it's always been a few months between seeing livestock prices fall and, and seeing supermarket prices fall, but, you know, I, I was keen to use my position to put a bit of pressure on the retailers and I'm pleased that one of them's responded. As I say, I'd now like to see the other ones do the same thing. Woolworths are dropping the price by 20%. Indicators are around 40 to 50% lower than, say, their peaks in March earlier this year as well. Is there is there room for more price drops or price cuts at the retail yeah. level? Yeah, I think, I think there is, Warwick, as time goes on. And I think we recognise that... Um, the prices are being a bit held up at the retail level also by stocks uh, that are already held um, that, and forward contracts that retailers entered into with producers and processors when prices were higher. But as we see those figures change, again, I would like to see those prices come down for consumers. I think all of us understand that Australians are feeling real cost of living pressure at the moment. We've been doing what we can as a government in trying to pass on energy rebates and cheaper medicines, cheaper childcare, things like that. But you know, if we can do more around food and grocery prices for Australians, that'll really help a lot of family budgets too. That's the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, speaking there to Warwick Long about uh, the price of lamb. Well, let's check the price of lamb. The Livestock Market's at Power Runner with Richard Bailey and see how the prices are going. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon, Tony. Well, it must have been a magic day at uh, Power Runner yesterday, weather-wise anyway. Weather-wise, it was beautiful. Following uh, local long weekend, uh, northern long weekend, uh, almost no cattle, so basically not enough to quote. A uh, few decent heifers, 230 to 250 cents a kilo, and then there were some pretty rough steers that restockers paid 110 to 220 cents a kilo for. That's all she wrote in that, uh, in that line. Mm-hmm. Store cattle sale uh, next week, is it? No, 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 not till the end of the month. End of the month, okay. Yeah. End right. of the month, which I think, for memory, is the 30th. Yeah, the 30th. But the ram sales are... are uh... Ram sales are from now on. Yeah. yeah there's a, a big variety of ram sales, plenty to pick from. So, uh, you know, uh, if you want rams, it's a good place to start looking around. Talk to your agent. Um, they'll get you around the, the studs that, uh, that have got the big sales coming up. Now, the lamb and sheep numbers, how are they? Yeah, lamb numbers are much bigger, uh, 1,870 lambs, uh, of which there are almost 1,000 new seasons lambs. So that's the beginning uh, of uh, decent numbers of new seasons lambs, and this will continue on now, I would think. Quality in the new seasons lambs, there wasn't a lot of weight apart from the first couple of pens, but the rest of them, they were nice and sappy, most of them, like not a lot of weight in some of them. The best pens made up to $115. Trade weights, 98 to $104. Light trade forty eight to seventy five dollars. They were to processors and butchers, and then restockers bought. Um, they bought trade lambs sort of seventy seven to eighty five dollars for a special job. Uh, light trade forty eight to seventy three, and lighter lambs fifty two to seventy one dollars a head. So pretty solid in that sort of anywhere from sort of fifty to seventy dollars a head for those people to to put lambs back in the paddock. 
Um, the quality of old lambs is very average, and we probably, this will be the last week, we'll probably talk about old lambs. I think they topped at $120. But seriously, there was a there were some big lines of merino lambs that only made 4 to $8 a head, so there's no joy there. Um, over in the mutton yard, 322 mutton and little buyer interest from anyone. Most sheep made between 4 and $8 a head. I can't remember, I don't think... You know, this time of the year, quoting sheep at that sort of level, there's just um, basically no interest at the moment. Um, you know, I, I know our local exporters killing mutton, but trying to get mutton across the water with the freight costs on top of what they can get over there, you know, is pretty difficult. Uh, you know, I know a couple of them are still operating in the paddock, but just very, very, uh, very disappointing mutton market. Yeah, it wouldn't even cover the transport costs, would it, to get them there? No, well, all the transport and yard costs, yep. Yeah. Uh, anything else coming up in the lamb uh, market? Any sales of note apart from the regular ones? No, not, not at the moment. Things will just... It, a lot will depend on the season down south, Tony. Um, if it continues to get very dry, we'll see a lot of uh, light lambs come on, light new season lambs come onto the market. It's be interesting to see how well that that restocker market holds up in that 50 to $70 bracket, I reckon. be interesting to see, but uh, let's talk Friday on what happens over the water. All right, Richard, uh, we shall talk then. Good on you. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.